This is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. Hello, friends. Welcome back. Today I'm going to look at the I Ams in John's Gospel. These are seven times in the book of John where Jesus uses metaphor to describe himself. But before we get into that, I want to remind you that if you'd like to contact me, if you have any questions or thoughts or responses to anything that I've shared, feel free to send me an email at ancientpaths at cantrell.cc. I'm always glad to hear from listeners and really do appreciate the feedback. As a matter of fact, just yesterday I received an email from a listener encouraging me to keep on going, and that was very nice. So please do send me a note if you have any thoughts. And before I get into the I am's in John's gospel, I think I'll mention something that I saw on the internet the other day. It's an advertisement for a game, and it really stood out to me as being quintessentially a modern advertisement. The headline said, only 3% of people can do this. So right off the bat, it's appealing to our pride. Oh, if I can do that, then I'm in the top 3% of the population, which I imagine is a lie. But it's advertising, so we let it slide, don't we? And then this game, it was an advertisement for a game. It was described as, quote, the most addictive game of the year. Start now, no download required, end quote. That's the selling point. It is the most addictive game of the year. (laughs) I assume that appeals to people to try to find the most addictive game, be in the top 3% and involved in the most addictive game that you can find. Well, that certainly led me to think about escapism and how this culture is so much about escaping from reality, running away from reality, or entering into a pretend reality, burning away time, time just dissipating our life, dissipating away, playing an addictive game on a screen, running away from reality, trying to escape. God wants his people to enter into reality, not escape from it. And he wants us to enter that reality with his spirit, by his spirit, walking with him, empowered to understand and walk in the hard things of life and the beautiful things of life. We limit screen time for our daughter. And because of that, she has lots of extra time that many people these days are spending on playing addictive games. (laughs) So our daughter has learned to play the piano. She's learning to play the mandolin and the penny whistle. She's painting, studying Serbian. There's just a lot of time. Instead of trying to escape reality, our daughter is embracing reality, learning these skills that'll help her serve other people and communicate with other people in different ways. So let's all laugh at these advertisements that say only 3% of people can do this or that or that try to entice us by selling us something that's addictive. It just makes me think, would a drug dealer say, this is the most addictive drug you can buy, and that's a selling point. That's why you should get this drug. It's funny that the addiction itself becomes a selling point. Not even how much fun it is, it's just how addictive it is. Well, that's really something. Let's flee from all that. Okay, before I take an entire episode on that topic, let's turn to the I am's. 
And this was a teaching that I heard about and I heard touched on in sermons and things like that, but I thought it would be good to just go ahead and take a closer look at the I Ams in the book of John. And it's these seven times, actually I'll mention eight or nine total, but seven times in the book of John where Jesus uses metaphor to describe himself. And it's interesting that Jesus used metaphor so much because he's engaging the imagination and he uses metaphor to describe something that's not of this world through metaphors of things that are in this world. As a matter of fact, that's exactly how Jesus was. He was not of this world, and here he was in the world. But first, why is this phrase, I am, so important? Why do we really want to look at that? Well, there's a couple of reasons. And the first reason is found in Exodus chapter 3. And as usual, I'm going to take my time today to read scripture so that we all have the context for what I'm talking about and we let the word of God speak for itself. I am in Exodus chapter 3, starting in verse 7. This is when the Lord is speaking with Moses on the mountain. And the Lord said to Moses, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. I'll stop there right now just to remind you when I was talking about Mount Moriah, well, that's where the Jebusites lived, was up on Mount Moriah, which is now the mountain of the Lord, the holy city of Jerusalem. Verse 9, God says, And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now, go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Well, that must have been quite some news to Moses. <laughs> out in the wilderness, go talk to the king of Egypt and bring all those people out. But Moses said to God in verse 11, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Which is a legitimate question. (laughs) We may say, well, I could have said, who am I to go to Russia and start running a a charity in St. Petersburg? And God said the same thing to me that he says here to Moses. God said in verse 12, I will be with you. And this will be a sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Let me stop there too. So many people believe they've heard the Lord and then they want God to confirm his word. And we say it's like laying down a fleece. You want to have some evidence before obedience that this really is God speaking, some confirmation of his word. And this is the sign that God promises to give Moses. He said, this will be the sign that I'm the one who sent you. When you're all out of Egypt and you're here worshiping me on this mountain, that's the proof that what I'm saying to you is true. (laughs) And that has been my experience. Sometimes God confirms his word in advance, and other times we are obedient and we have faith that what he said will come to pass will come to pass. And then when it does come to pass, then that's proof. That is the sign that he was the one who started the whole process. So sometimes you shouldn't hesitate. Walk in faith. And this is what God said to Moses. This will be the sign to you 
that it is I who have sent you. Continuing in verse 13, Moses said to God, Well, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me, and they ask me, Well, what is his name? What will I tell them then? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. All right, this phrase, I am who I am, haya ashar haya, in the Hebrew, to be or to exist. God is saying, I am the one that exists. And of course, we understand that to mean that everything that does exist comes from him. God is saying, I exist. I am who I am. And this is what you're to say to the Israelites. I am sent me to you. So that's one reason that this phrase, I am, is so important. It's because this is the name that God gives to himself. It's how he reveals himself. And there's another reason why I am is so important when Jesus uses it, because this is how he reveals himself. We'll look at the times that Jesus uses I am regarding himself. And as I mentioned, it's metaphor and poetic It's poetic as well as down to earth. And just in the same way that we study the covenants to see how God chooses to relate to mankind, we study what Jesus says about himself so we can understand who he is, his character as he chooses to reveal it to us. So when we study these I am's today, this is the revelation that Jesus gives of himself who he is, what his work is, what his message is, and how we are to relate to him. And as we go through these seven uses of I am in the book of John, listen for how many times he mentions the word life. As Jesus speaks of himself, let's keep our eyes open for the times that he uses the word life. The first example is found in John chapter 6. As I've said before, John chapter 6 is actually one of my favorite chapters in the Bible because so much of it is about desire and the things of this world and the things of the world to come and hunger and what motivates human beings to follow Jesus. Well, I won't read all of John chapter 6, but just to work through it very quickly, the early parts of John chapter 6 are when Jesus feeds the 5,000. There's about 5,000 men that were there with the loaves and the fishes. And then he walks on the water, starting in verse 16 of John chapter 6. And the people then follow him. And I'll just go ahead and read, starting in verse 25. When the people found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus answered, Oh, it was a little bit earlier this morning. I came on a boat. No, (laughs) he doesn't answer that way. It's interesting. Here is an example of where Jesus does not answer the question that is asked of him. And how many times has that happened to me? I ask him one question, and he gives an answer to something that's a lot deeper. Let's start again. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, you are looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. (laughs) Rabbi, when'd you get here? You know what? You're just coming over here for more food. That's what his answer is. 
And then he turns this into an opportunity to teach them a very deep and important spiritual lesson. Verse 27, he says to them, Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. And here comes a really good question. Well, then they asked him, What must we do to do the works that God requires? Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. It's interesting. He's telling them to work for food that doesn't spoil. And then they say, well, what is that work? What do we have to do? And Jesus says, well, the work is actually to believe. And remember, Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. The faith of Abraham was credited to Abraham as righteous works. And we are children of Abraham. And this is how God desires to relate to us and for us to relate to him, to believe, truly believe, not from a distance, but to enter into a life of belief. Well, then they asked him, well, what miraculous sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? Well, they just saw a miraculous sign the day before. What will you do? Our forefathers ate manna in the desert, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. So they're just making demands of Jesus. Well, prove it to us. Of course, he's been giving proof all through his ministry. Jesus answered them in verse 32, I tell you the truth, it is not Moses who has given you bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, well, from now on, give us this bread. You get a feeling they're still hungry in their bellies, but they're asking for this bread that Jesus is talking about. I think they're not quite getting it. And then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. And here's our first I am. I am the bread of life, he says. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and still do not believe. All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Well, at this, the Jews began to grumble about him because he had said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Going on in verse 42, they said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? Well, how can he say, I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, They will all be taught by God. And that is a reference to Isaiah chapter 54, verse 13. Everyone who listens to the Father and learns from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. I tell you the truth, he who believes has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your forefathers ate manna in the desert, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. 
If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Well, the story goes on from there, but we'll stop at this point just to talk about the bread of life there in John chapter 6. In verse 35, he says, I am the bread of life. And there's the word life. Jesus says, he who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. Of course, I think we see the elements of communion here, to never be hungry and to never be thirsty, to eat the communion elements, to take them into ourselves. In verse 51, Jesus says, I am living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. So here Jesus is saying that he gives his life for the world. If we take his life into ourselves, then we will go on living. As I mentioned, there's some insight into the mystery of communion. I spoke at length previously, you might want to go back and look that up, an episode on communion and what are the deep meanings of communion and how we are called to not only relate to God, but to actually take his life into us, to receive his life. The second I am in the book of John is found in John chapter 8. We'll revisit John chapter 8 a little bit later, but right now we'll just look at this moment where Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And there's the word life again. Immediately after he says this, the Pharisees challenge Jesus and say, here you are appearing as your own witness. Your testimony isn't valid. They're basically saying, you're talking about yourself, so that's not a valid way to present truth. Well, it's interesting that the Pharisees actually have changed the subject a little bit, and they just don't get it. So let's think about what Jesus is saying. He says, I am the light of the world. And there are some qualities of light, things that I think about. One thing about light is it reveals what is truly there. Light will reveal truth. The more light we have, the more we can see what is actually there. Like walking into a room with a very dim light, you may think that over here is a chair and over there is something else, but you turn on a brighter light and you can see. So light reveals what is truly there. In the same way, light drives out darkness. Darkness can't stand up to light. Darkness is not its own power. It's the absence of light. And when light enters into a place, it drives away that darkness. Related to those two things, of course, is that light enables understanding. It gives us the ability to understand, to see truth better and understand it better. Just thinking about some other qualities of light, it's direct. It takes a straight line. It doesn't waver. It goes and does what it's going to do. And light is very fast, very, very fast. And light can also serve as a beacon in darkness. It's like a ship on the ocean floating in darkness and unsure of the dangers. But then there's a lighthouse, and that's a beacon that says this is the way to safety. This reminds me of something that Jesus said on the Sermon of the Mount. He said, don't hide your light under a basket. And this really is an example of how Jesus's life is consistent with his teaching. He says, whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This is a theme that comes up very often in the teachings of Jesus, that we are to follow him, 
not stand at a distance and believe that he is who he says he is, but to actually walk with him. A disciple of Jesus is a follower of Jesus. And that is what we're called to. Not to be engaged in some religious observances, but to actually walk with Jesus. The third example of the I Ams is found in John chapter 10. And I think I'll start at the beginning of the chapter. Take a little bit of time to read this, but it's good to have this context. This also, I think, is a familiar teaching to most of us. Beginning in verse 1 of John chapter 10, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, the man who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. The man who enters by the gate is the shepherd of his sheep. The watchman opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all of his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but they didn't understand what he was telling them. And therefore Jesus said again, I tell you the truth, I am the gate for the sheep. Whoever came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. All right, so first we're going to look here in John chapter 10. Jesus calling himself a gate, or some translations call it the door. I am the door. You know, sometimes people say that they take the Bible literally. And I have to say that I don't take the Bible literally because Jesus called himself a door. He called himself a gate. And he's not literally a gate in that sense. He's not a slab of wood on hinges with a latch. This is a metaphor. Even though I don't take this literally, I believe he means exactly what he says. And he's using metaphor to communicate a very deep and eternal truth that exclusively applies to Jesus. In John 10 verse 7, Jesus says, I am the gate for the sheep. And a couple of verses later, he says, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. Well, that's what a gate is. That's what a door is. It's going from one place to another, and it allows the movement through from one place to another. And Jesus is this way. He is the way in to salvation and rest. And he says they'll go out and they'll find pasture. So through Jesus, we can go out and be led by him into fulfillment of our nature, nourishment, freedom. This also brings to mind Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, where Jesus says, What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I think that's very important for us to understand. If God is opening a way for you to move into the things that he has prepared for you, well, nobody can shut that door. Jesus himself, when he opens himself for you to enter into his life and his salvation, no one can shut that door. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. 
Well, immediately following this, in John chapter 10, there's another I am. Starting in verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd who owns the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. What we see here, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. Well, there are a couple of things that we can get out of this. First is that as a good shepherd, Jesus is selfless to the point of death. He is protective and caring of his flock. Not just the flock generally, but he speaks to each sheep by name. So he is selfless to the point of death. He is protective and caring of you. He's protective and caring of me. He will lay his life down even for our enemies and for his enemies. That's how selfless he is. He also says that his sheep know him. And he knows them. And this is another quality about the Good Shepherd is he's knowable. That's great. That is really wonderful that the shepherd is knowable in a personal way, one-on-one. Not a distant figure sitting on a throne casting down lightning bolts to destroy people that he doesn't like. No, this is a Good Shepherd. I'll also underscore this word good. Jesus is a good shepherd shepherd. He's the good shepherd. He's the best shepherd there is. He is very good at shepherding. And recently I've had a few conversations with people who are going through big transitions in their life. And my response is, I don't know exactly what God has for you, but I know that he's helped many people like you go through this exact situation. He's a very good shepherd. He knows the best path through what is ahead of you even though you may not even know what's ahead of you. So my advice to you and to myself is let's listen for the shepherd's voice. Let's walk with the shepherd and leave the guidance to him. He loves us. He wants to lead us. He's very good at it. All right, moving on now to John chapter 11. Another I am. This is when Jesus is visiting in Bethany. Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. And remember, Jesus was a very good friend of this family, had visited them before Martha and Mary and Lazarus, their brother. And he comes after Lazarus has died. And Lazarus has already been in the tomb for four days. And that is a significant amount of time because in that climate, in those days, if a body has been in a tomb for four days, it's really beginning to rot away. And I believe that Jesus delayed his arrival by that amount of time so that it would really be a hopeless situation to the people that were around. This body is beginning to rot. So there were many Jews there, and they had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. This is John chapter 11, starting in verse 20. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. But Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, If you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Boy, Martha's got the faith, doesn't she? 
And Jesus says to her, Your brother will rise again. And Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection in the last day. Well, she'd heard that teaching. Jesus said, I'll raise them up at the last day. So she believed that. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. And then Jesus asks her a question that he asks of you and me. Do you believe this? And she gives the right answer, the good response. Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who was to come into the world. Amen. Or look here, what Jesus says of himself. I am the resurrection and the life. Here's the word life again. He who believes in me will live, even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Beautiful. Lovely. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He is the conqueror of death. There is hope here because he is the resurrection. There's always hope. Jesus does not say that he knows the way to life or that he knows how to have life. He says he is life, the life. Well, that echoes all the way back to our discussion about Moses when God says, I am who I am. I exist. That's who I am. I am life. And Jesus is saying, I am the life and the resurrection. Moving on into John chapter 14, we look at the next time that Jesus says of himself, I am. I'll start in verse 1 of John chapter 14. Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and he's just told Peter that before the rooster crows in the morning, Peter is going to disown him three times, which I imagine was quite a shock to the disciples. And Jesus says, well, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. So much has been said about this. I'm sure you've heard a lot of people talk about this, but I will say a few things about what he says of himself. First of all, he says, I am the way. And the way is a pilgrimage. It's a road. It's traveling on. It's not a destination. It is a way through things to something. And he says, I am the truth. True knowledge, not questionable, dark, unknowable things. He is the truth. He is the truth himself. He's not saying that he knows the truth. He is saying he is the truth. And he says that he is the life. The way is ongoing. The truth is ever increasing. And this life is eternal. Well, you can see how a lot of people in his time really questioned him because he's a carpenter from Nazareth. He's been doing amazing things, and yet still people wonder. 
about this man and what he claims about himself. And to say, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me? Well, my goodness, that is a sticking point for so many people all throughout history and all around the globe today, that Jesus is the only way to the Father. There is no other way to the Father except through Jesus. That's what Jesus said of himself. It's not something I'm saying about him. That's what he said about himself. Moving on to John chapter 15. This is number seven on our list. Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If a man remains in me, and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus says that he is the true vine and his father is the gardener. Well, so, (laughs) in verse 5, he clarifies a bit and gives us some more information. He says, I am the true vine and you are the branches. If we remain in him and he in us, then we will bear much fruit. Because apart from him, we can't do anything. Jesus is claiming to be the source of all life, the source of strength and purpose and meaning. And if we don't abide in him, then we are cut off and we wither away. The life stops flowing. He is the vine. We're the branches. We are not the vine. He is. Life flows from him into us as we abide in him. And the branch gets no life from any other source. It dies if it's cut off from its source. The imagery Jesus uses here is not one of welding. For those of you who know, when you weld metal together, you take two dead pieces of metal and you stick them together. But this is not welding, this is grafting. Jesus is the vine and we stay connected to him and life flows and fruit comes and meaning and purpose and strength come from the vine into the branches. This is an extraordinary claim of Jesus, that he is the vine. And if we abide in him, we're going to bear a lot of fruit. But if we don't, then everything that we're involved in really means nothing. It's not eternal. It's wasting away. Well, that was the seven times that Jesus said, I am in a metaphorical sense, But there is one more very important use of I am by Jesus, and that's found in John chapter 8. Let's start in verse 48. The Jews said to Jesus, Aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and you're demon-possessed? I'm not possessed by a demon, Jesus said, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. I am not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. I tell you the truth, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. At this, the Jews exclaimed, Well, now we know that you are demon-possessed. Abraham died, and so did the prophets. Yet you say that if anyone keeps your word, 
he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Jesus replied, If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My Father, whom you claim is your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar, like you. But I do know him, and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You're not yet fifty years old, the Jews said to him, and you have seen Abraham? I tell you the truth, Jesus answered. Before Abraham was born, I am. At this they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. Well, look at that. There is so much there. Here Jesus claims to predate Abraham. Of course those Jews who didn't believe Jesus wanted to kill him because he claimed to exist before Abraham. And he uses this term, I am, to define himself. It's the very name that God revealed to Moses. In verse 58, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was, I am. And the Greek there is ego eimi, I believe is how it's pronounced. And that is in the present tense. He doesn't say before Abraham was, I was. He says before Abraham was, I am. Wow, there's so much meaning wrapped up in what he said. And you can understand why these self-important religious leaders took offense. This is an example of why people just can't say Jesus was a good moral teacher. Because here he's making claims that if they're not true, then he's crazy. But, of course, he proved that what he said was true when he was raised from the dead and ascended up to heaven. Historically, physically, raised from the dead. And here he's saying, before Abraham was born, I am. Wow, that is really something. There is one more I am and this is in John chapter 18. And this example is striking to me because of the way people respond to him. So in John chapter 18, Judas is bringing some soldiers and officials to arrest Jesus. And they're carrying torches and lanterns and they have weapons. And in verse 4 we read, Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it that you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And when Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and they fell to the ground. I don't know. I just have to imagine the power that came when he said, I am the one you're looking for. He goes to them. He said, who are you looking for? Well, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. I am he. And something in the power of that statement made them fall back and hit the ground. His presence of self-revelation. Well, in closing, I have a few questions related to what we've just studied. These seven times where Jesus uses metaphor to talk about himself. And here are the questions for you. Are you spiritually hungry? Do you want clarity and revelation? Do you need protection and care? Are you on a path that leads to darkness and death? Do you want to know the way forward? Do you need guidance and a revitalization, new life? Do you feel like you're withering? 
Do you long to bear good eternal fruit? Well, Jesus answers those questions. And he doesn't say, I know the way to be fed, or I know how you can get clarity and revelation. He doesn't say, I know how you can get protection and care. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Are you spiritually hungry? Jesus is the bread of life. Do you want clarity and revelation? Jesus is the light of the world. Do you need protection? Jesus is the door to safety and rest. Are you on a path that leads to death? Do you want to know the way forward? Jesus is the good shepherd. Do you need new life? Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Do you feel like you're withering? Do you long to bear good fruit, eternal fruit? Jesus is the vine. One final reminder. The new covenant is a promise that God will put his divine spirit within his people. God will never leave you as an orphan. Jesus said, I will never leave you. I am with you all the way to the end of the age. He is life and safety and rest and resurrection and truth and power. So friends, until next time, I pray that God will continue to reveal to you his pathways because his ways are always good and they always lead to rest for the soul. Amen. Jesus said to his disciples, Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Thank you for listening and God bless you all.